Toronto, Canada. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. And welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler. Hang your cloak on a peg. Grab a stool and come gather around the fire. There are stories to be told and you are among friends. Assassination researcher Jim D. Eugenio this hour to help us commemorate the upcoming anniversary of the assassination of John F. Kennedy. And in just a few days, of course, it will be 56 years since the 35th president was murdered in Dallas. In the second hour, a miracle molecule, carbon-60, may just hold the key to longevity. Chris Burris is a scientist-turned-entrepreneur, and he'll be here to tell us about C60 and and this amazing peer-reviewed study, uh, an animal study uh, involving rats, and what it could mean for dramatically extending our lives. That's coming up in the second hour. And if you haven't already done so, please take a moment, and it just takes a moment, register at my website, strangeplanet.ca. Do it right now. Again, it takes just a moment, strangeplanet.ca. And then once you do, you'll automatically receive my free monthly newsletter, Inner Sanctum. Uh, The November issue just went out last week. It looked great. Uh, So don't miss out on the December issue. Register at strangeplanet.ca. All right. Almost 56 years ago, the 35th president of the United States was murdered in Dallas in a most grisly fashion, in broad daylight, in public. And, of course, the questions of what really happened that day and what might have been linger for all of us. And here to hopefully answer some of those questions is truly one of the preeminent JFK assassination researchers working out there today, James D. Eugenio. He is the author of Destiny Betrayed, about the Garrison investigation of the Kennedy assassination. It was first published back in 1992, with a second greatly revised edition issued in 2012, uh, Reclaiming Parkland, published in 2013 and reissued in expanded form in 2016, Uh, which offers a detailed critical examination of the Warren Commission's evidence and conclusions, along with the analysis of the CIA's influence in Hollywood. He is also the co-author and editor of the Assassinations Probe magazine on JFK, MLK, RFK, and Malcolm X. He, of course, co-edited Probe magazine from 1993 to 2000 and was a guest commentator on the anniversary issue of the film JFK, re-released by Warner Brothers in 2013. And uh, he's also here to tell us about a brand new project involving the director of JFK, Oliver Stone. It's a a new documentary series. Jim DiEugenio, welcome back to The Conspiracy Show. How are you, my friend? Not too bad, David. Working a little bit too hard, but outside of that, you know, I guess we can all (laughs) complain about that, you know. Sure. David's actually my brother. You were you were you were close. <laughs> it's Richard. Remember? <laughs> That's all right. You're you're working too hard. You're working too hard. So first, right out of the shoot, tell us about uh, this uh, this new documentary uh, series that is is uh, based on Destiny Betrayed. All right. Well, the announcement was in Variety last month by the distributor. 
We're in the editing phase right now. We shot about 25 interviews in five different cities. You know, I never did that kind of travel because we did the five different cities in about 10 days. Some very, very interesting interviews we did. We're editing together at this stage, and we're working away. I mean, every day I'm almost, almost every day I'm down at his office, you know, and he and I are looking at these interviews and figuring out how the best way to incorporate them into the, into the script. I suspect we should have a rough cut in January and then have the final product probably in March. How many but, parts in the series? Well, that's a good question. It was, it was originally planned as three, but I think we have so much good stuff, I think we might go to four. I really don't want to cut out any of the great stuff we have. And we've got, believe me, we've got a lot of great stuff. This documentary, the main subject, is the revelations of the Assassinations Record Review Board. And I've talked about this on your show, how there has been a kind of blackout about all the great discoveries, you know, that the review board made on a wide variety of fronts. And the MSM has pretty much ignored this stuff. I would say it's been a virtual blackout. And so this film is going to try and get across to the American public. These are some very, very important discoveries, and you should be made aware of them. And the other part, the bookend part of this of the uh, documentary, is going to be what we've learned about JFK in the meantime also, because there's been a lot of information on that that has also been kind of uh, ignored. Well, not kind of, it has been ignored. Mm-hmm. You know, I've, right. I've come to the conclusion that the cover-up about who JFK was is even deeper and more complex than how he was killed. So You know, that's, that's a, an excellent be... point, because I wanted to follow up on that, actually, if I could just jump in here a moment. And that is sure, the idea hey, that... Richard, it's your this show. I... <laughs> uh, the lone gunman... <laughs> We have spent, not me, but you have spent and others have spent, you know, decades going down this path and talking about ballistics and trajectory. And was Oswald the lone gunman? Was there another shooter? Was he a patsy? Did he have anything to do with it? You know, was he by the vending machine? Was he not by the vending machine? I'm wondering if that in some sense might have been a setup to distract us from what you're about to talk to, which is the second cover up. You know, something that's a very good observation. I've actually come to believe there's some truth to that. You know, that all this arguing back and forth about, uh, you know, the single bullet theory, the hole in the back of JFK's head, did Oswald shoot Tippett? And I think they actually said this in the movie, that that's all scenery. Why was Kennedy killed? Who was he? And then why was there this huge cover-up? And why, and this is the really important part of the story, why did so many things change so fast after his assassination? I mean, was that all just a coincidence? You know, I can go through a whole list of areas where this happened. We will. I want want to do that. But just let me just follow up on that uh, that idea that the second cover-up that you speak to, and we will get into foreign policy in places like the Congo, and Algeria, and the Middle East, and and so forth. 
But just this idea that the lone gunman debate, whether it was supposed to be shattered, because that just leads us down this other rabbit hole, which again is a distraction. Do you think there's yeah, any evidence? Then, then you get into all these different theories. Okay, you know, well, yeah, like did the mafia kill JFK? Did the CIA kill JFK? Did Israel kill JFK? Did the Pentagon kill JFK? You know, did the FBI, etc. All the way down, did Johnson kill JFK? You know, and and so that's and that's what I think it was. I think you're right about that. I think that's what it was designed to do. That's how intricate. Uh, that the cover-up was. And all of this is meant to distract from who was Kennedy. Why were they so desperate to get rid of him? You know? Okay? And and what happened after his assassination? You know, so, yeah, I think, I think you're... And that's essentially what we're trying to do uh, with this program. Okay? We're trying to put the new information out there about both his assassination and his legacy, all right, and then let the viewers... Actually, the best thing that could happen as a result of this show, I believe, is people would start saying to each other, why didn't Chris Matthews tell me this? Mm -hmm. Why didn't Rachel Maddow tell me this? You know, that's what I want them to ask themselves. Why do I have to get this from this documentary? Right. Well, it's it, it reminds me of um, uh, John Barber, who was on the show recently, and he had a he interviewed Garrison, and he had a, a, a documentary out called "The Second Assassination of JFK." In other words, he was shot once in Dallas, and then the mainstream media assassinated him again. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, but but getting onto the foreign policy, uh, you have made the point. That again, you know, we focus everything we, when we talk about Kennedy and the foreign policy, we focus on two places. We focus on Cuba and we focus on Vietnam. And people, again, they look for theories. Okay, well, he didn't support the CIA and the Bay of Pigs invasion. Uh, so that's a motive. And then he was, you know, he wasn't going to uh, commit troops on the ground in Vietnam. So that's another motive. So it's all wrapped up in Cuba and Vietnam. And I think that's wrong. Mm-hmm. I think that's wrong. And one of the things I tried to do in the second edition of Destiny Betrayed was to explain why I thought it was wrong. All right. And I started really looking into this in about 2012. Uh, and I just became kind of frustrated because... If you pick up 100 JFK books, you know, and you read them all, that's all you're going to hear about. <laughs> is Vietnam. Cuba and Vietnam. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And, and you'll never hear about anything else. It's almost like, you know, Kennedy spent, you know, 900 and some days in office, and that's all he did. You know, 500 days on Vietnam, 400 days on Cuba. And that's not the truth at all. Not at all. It's not even close to being the truth. And so one of the people we interviewed for the show is a guy who alerted me that this was wrong. His name is Richard Mahoney, and he wrote a book back in 1983, JFK or Deal in Africa. And I didn't discover this book 
until about 1995, and it was completely by accident. I was in this little town near San Diego called Julian, and as I usually do when I'm on a vacation, I go into the used bookstore to see if there's anything there that I don't have. And so I went in there, and I saw this guy's book with the famous picture of JFK getting the news of Lumumba's death, you know, which is a remarkable, dramatic, iconic photograph. Right, his head is, he's despondent, his head is buried in his hands, and for those not familiar with Patrice Lumumba, he was the first sort of post-colonial president of of the Congo after they won their independence from Belgium. Mm -hmm. Right, and so once I saw that picture, you know, it's, it's, Kennedy has this look of utter disdain, like he's almost grimacing in pain with his head in his hands. You know, I said to myself, you know something? I don't think Eisenhower would have reacted like that. I don't think Johnson would have reacted like that. I know Nixon wouldn't have reacted like that. Nixon would have had a big smile on his face. You know? So I said, there's, there, there's got to be something more to what this guy is thinking than Vietnam and Cuba. So I picked up the book. And that book really opened up my eyes to what Kennedy's ideas about foreign policy were, all right? And I'll never forget reading it, okay? I, 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 was, I was just, you know, kind of like, I'm not sure if my eyebrows arched up in the air, okay? But that's the kind of feeling that I remember I was reading it. I go, I didn't know any of this stuff, you know? So I incorporated a lot of that into the second edition of Destiny Betrayed. All right, and I tried to show that this policy that Kennedy had, what, this was before he entered the White House, it wasn't really something that happened after the Bay of Pigs or after the missile crisis. But it helps us understand why Kennedy did not send in the Navy at the Bay of Pigs, why he did not bomb the missile silos during the missile crisis, why he refused to send in ground troops into Vietnam in 1961 and then drew the line and it was simply by 1963 he's looking to get out and so it was this idea this concept he had about the third world to help me understand why those things never happened with him all right and so I went into this and I actually brought up the name of a guy that not very many people even knew about, which I thought was disgraceful. Okay, his name was Edmund Gullion. All right, Edmund Gullion was a longtime State Department official who Kennedy briefly met in Washington in, I think, 1947 or 1948. And when he took a trip to Saigon in Asia, the rest of Asia, in 1951, he remembered Gullion, and because Gullion spoke fluent French, and he had been stationed, he was now stationed in Saigon. So when Kennedy went there, he looked up Gullion, and like many other people that he did this with, he asked him, this was at a rooftop restaurant in Saigon, Bobby Kennedy was there, 
And he asked them, you know, are we on the right side here? Is France going to win the war? Because as most, I think all your listeners will know, the French Civil War against Vietnam was going on at this time. They tried to right. They were trying themselves. to win back the colony. Yeah. Right after World War II. Okay, and the United States was supporting this effort. And in fact, by 1950, the United States was footing about 75 to 80 percent of the bill for this colonial war. So Kennedy asked him, you know, is France going to win this war? And Gullion shot back and he said, there's no way in the world France is going to win this war. All right. Ho Chi Minh has fired up these Viet Minh rebels to the point that they would rather die than go back under the yoke of colonialism. France will never win a war of attrition because that's what that's what's happening here. It's a war of attrition. Neither side can win. And therefore, they will lose home support for this effort. And then he added, very presciently, he said, and if the United States tries to come in and do the same thing, we will lose also. Okay, well, well, JFK was really taken aback by this. All right? And his brother said that this conversation uh, had a very deep and transformative impact on, on his thinking, okay? And so what happened was that when he got back, he began to make these radio addresses attacking the State Department, you know, for, for you know, that we have too many people who are toadying up to the home colonial powers instead Jim, of being I, in tune gotta, with the aspirations in of the people there. We're going to take a break here, but uh, we'll come back. We'll pick okay. up on um, Edmund Gullion, is uh, Kennedy's mentor in, in some ways, uh, and we'll begin to understand that Kennedy's foreign policy was pretty much in place by the time he was inaugurated in 1961. He didn't do an about-face because of the Cuban Missile Crisis. This was who he was coming into office, and perhaps this more than anything has to do with his assassination. Jim DiEugenio stays with us right here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. Where there's smoke, there's The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Welcome back. Jim DiEugenio, one of the world's preeminent assassination researchers, the author of Destiny Betrayed, Reclaiming Parkland, the Assassinations Probe magazine on JFK, MLK, RFK, and Malcolm X, and now uh, working very closely with Oliver Stone on a documentary series based on uh, Destiny Betrayed. And before the end of the hour, maybe we'll get some more details on when we might expect that and where we might see it. Uh, it could be a three-part or it could be a four-part series. Uh, Jim, we were talking about Edmund Gullion, the a State Department official that really uh, helped, I guess, open Kennedy's eyes when he was still a senator uh, in the uh, the late 40s and then into the 1950s. Uh, so the idea here is that uh, when Kennedy was inaugurated in January of 61, this was his his foreign policy was pretty pretty much cemented, right? I think it. I think you can make that statement that by when when he goes ahead and enters the White House in 1961. Generally speaking, his foreign policy views have already been forged, and I believe you can look at places 
like Congo and Vietnam that will prove that point as well as and Indonesia. Indonesia. Right, right, right. Now, was, okay. was Gulian in the White House with him? Was he an advisor? Well, Gulian actually becomes, I think, by the summer of 1961, he becomes the ambassador to Congo. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And I, and I have to say something about this, which I didn't know until recently. Um, anybody who reads my website, Kennedy's and King, dot com or reads my books or listens to me on any of the shows I'm on will understand that I believe that the relationship between Kennedy and Dag Hammarskjöld has been very underrated, okay, and ignored, relatively ignored. All right, um, there's this film that came out, Cold Case Hammarskjöld. Yes, right. I just had that guy on my uh, show a, a while ago. Oh, you did? Yes, yes. Actually, I it was on my that. podcast. A, did, you, did you see the film? I did. I did. It's an excellent film. I, good, I had him on my podcast. It's wonderful. Uh, and for those, yeah. just a little quick backstory. Doug Hammerstolt, Secretary General of the United Nations, uh, was, uh, you know, they, they didn't know what they were getting. They thought he was some dry bureaucrat, but he was a very aggressive, proactive individual and he sent peacekeeping forces into the Congo, uh, really on his own. I mean, he didn't really, he just went over everybody's head. And at that time, the Congo was fighting a, a war with a, a breakaway portion of the Congo called Katanga, where all the, the mineral wealth is really in Katanga. So Congo could not let Katanga go. And he was trying to broker a peace a deal between Katanga and Congo. When his plane, of course, mysteriously crashed uh, in, in uh, what is now Zimbabwe, I think. And uh, in this film, Cold Case, uh, I mean, it, it's it's pretty much case closed, I think, in terms of what happened. His plane was shot down. It was not a pilot error. It was his plane was shot down. He was murdered. And and by the way, they're still covering up about this. They still can't get the UN still can't get certain files from South Africa the United right. States, Belgium, and Great Britain. Okay? Right. <laughs> All the guilty parties. Okay? So right. <laughs> so now, so that you, the connection between Kennedy and um, Hammerskold and the murder of Patrice, well, the the assassination of Patrice Lumumba, the uh, the, the, the president in, in, in Congo, what is the connection there? See, this is, I'm, I'm, I'm really frustrated that more people in this field do not understand how important Congo was, you know. I mean, in so many different ways. And I, you know, and I talked about this time after time after time, you know, until finally I got blue in the face and I kind of gave up, all right. But Congo, under, under, just understand this. In three years, the three people who tried to stand up for Congo's independence against European imperialism were all assassinated under strange circumstances. <laughs> okay. Lumumba, Hammerskjold, and Kennedy. And by the way, I am not going to ever say again that Hammerskjold was, was killed in a plane accident because I think that's a complete BS story. Okay, and I think anybody who sees that film 
will understand why. All right? Now, this is such an important story for the simple reason that Congo was the first sub-Saharan, you know, African state to try and make a go out of independence after decades upon decades of European colonialism. And Lumumba was such a charismatic figure, and he was a symbol of freedom and nationalism, you know, to millions of Africans, all right? And he went, let's be, be clear about this, the CIA working in tandem with the Belgians and the leaders in Katanga essentially kidnapped him and assassinated him by firing squad. All right. And then, then they went ahead and buried him and then they resurfaced his body and threw acid on it so there wouldn't be any remains left of the body. And I mm. think they did that twice. That's how much they feared that he would become well, and it backfired anyway, because he is a symbol, you know. But when this is what Kennedy's picture was taken up by Jock Lowe on, that I've tried to describe, well, Hammerskald tried to step in and keep Congo united and also independent. All right, he sent in, it's really remarkable, he sent in something like 20,000 troops yeah. into Congo to clear out Katanga, you know, and of all the mercenaries from Belgium, from France, from England, etc. All right? And so be, they, they could be unified under one leader chosen by the people. All right? Now, if you see that film, you will understand how certain people, most likely the Belgians and the Union of South Africa people, decided that Hammerskjold had to be done away with. And there's two very important things, very important things to understand about this. First of all, in the Union of South Africa, when they had the TRC, the Truth and Reconciliation Committee, they found documents from a shadowy entity called Samir, which was a paramilitary group. There were about 12 documents found. They did dirty work for the imperial powers throughout Africa. All right? One of the documents is a summary of a communication with Alan Dulles. And it says, Alan wants DAG taken care of more cleanly than Patrice was. <laughs> let, me, let me say that again, because I want everybody to get the import of this. Alan wants DAG taken care of more cleanly than Patrice was. What else could that possibly mean? Right. You know? Right. <laughs> All right. Now, the other thing that's so important that came out of late was that Edmund Gullion, who was the ambassador there, he never bought the accident story. I'm not kidding. From the day that it happened, he thought that Hammerskull's plane was shot down. 
and he thought that it was shot down by a Belgian pilot, a mercenary mm-hmm. pilot. Okay? Now, we're going to go further with this story in the documentary we're producing, because we found out some even more interesting information about Gullion and the Congo and, and uh, Dag Hammarskjöld. But, but I think that the important so the takeaway here is anyway. yeah. now dead. Right. So Kennedy, one of the most amazing stories and the most hidden stories in the Kennedy presidency is that Kennedy took up Hammerschold's cause. He decided he was going to finish the job that Hammerschold had started. All right, he goes to the UN and he says let us not let Dag Hammarskjöld have died in vain. And he goes ahead and he says, we have to keep those UN troops there. We have to get rid of this mercenary government in Katanga. Congo has to be one country under one elected leader. And he sticks to this. He sticks to this until the day he was assassinated. All right? And at great political expense. And so then what happens is that he agrees to let the U.N. troops go. He wanted to get a negotiated settlement. He couldn't get it. He agrees to let the U.N. troops go into Katanga, all right, and they take out Mosi Tashambi, who was the, you know, the, the front guy for the European interests, okay? And for a while it looked like Congo was going to be the first independent, free state Sub-Saharan Africa, a great example to the rest of Africa. Well, like many other things, once Johnson came in, that went topsy-turvy, all right, in a lot of different ways. And so what happens is that Congo ends up being a vassal state, again, under Joseph Mobutu, who ruled for 30 years, sacked the country of hundreds of millions of dollars, left the country a poor state with a lot of European interests still making money off it. And, see, this is one of the stories that, until I came around, I'm not touting my own horn because I'm not the only guy who could have done it. A lot of people could have done it and should have done it. Okay, Jim, but i gotta, I got to jump in here. I started talking about this. i got to jump in here. we got to take a time out. We'll come back and uh, we'll okay. talk about some other places around the world. We're starting to see a pattern here, folks. Jim DiEugenio, back with more on the JFK assassination. Stay with us. Peering into the shadows, where the truth often hides. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett. Welcome back. Just a reminder, coming up in the second hour, Chris Burroughs will be here to talk about this miracle molecule, carbon-60. And right now, Jim DiEugenio stays with us. We're commemorating the 56th anniversary of the murder of President John F. Kennedy. And uh, we're seeing this pattern emerge. And um, uh, first in the Congo, oh, just let me, one more point on uh, Patrice Lumumba. So he's, he's uh, assassinated just within, what, a week of Kennedy's inauguration in January of 61, uh, and then, of course, there's that iconic no, photograph. Richard, no, Richard, you're wrong. No? Oh, he was assassinated was... before Kennedy was took office. Ah, oh, right. three days before he was inaugurated. Three days before. And many okay, three people, days before. Including myself, believe 
that the CIA sped it up because they knew that JFK would not stand for this. Okay? So they got rid of him before Ah. Kennedy was inaugurated, and then he doesn't find out until three weeks after he becomes president. Ah. Okay, so it's after he finds out. I understand. So it was Eisenhower who likely signed off on that. Yeah, well, he did. He did. The church committee came to that conclusion. That that what what happened was that Eisenhower essentially said, you know, we've got to get rid of this guy, all right. And then the job went to Alan Dulles, and Alan Dulles sent a cable to Leopoldville, and said, and remember, this is 1960, right? He says you have a hundred thousand dollar budget, do with it as you will, but get rid of get rid of Lumumba. Now, a hundred thousand dollars back then would be like 900000 close to a million dollars today. Okay? Right. You can dream up a lot of ways to kill somebody with that kind of money. Okay? So, so that's what the station chief, a guy named Devlin, did in Leopoldville. And they brought in, oh, my God, Q.J. Wynn, W.I. Rogue, Sidney Gottlieb, you know, the mm. poisoner, the guy who designed mm-hmm. all these poisons. All right? And then they finally decided, you know something? There's a better way to do this so our hands aren't directly involved. Okay, let's go ahead and wait for Lumumba to escape house arrest, and then let's get him once he escapes and deliver him to his enemies in Katanga. So that's what they did. That's what they did. Right. Helicopters, computer sensors, when he escaped from house arrest, they tracked him down. Okay, they... They cordoned off all the uh, waterways, okay, so he couldn't cross. And they captured him, turned him over to the people that uh, hated his guts, and then they arranged a firing squad over in Katanga. There's actually a pretty good movie about this. Did you see it? Lumumba? No. No, I haven't. Yeah, I I would recommend seeing that. That's actually a pretty good film. Okay, this is a short segment, so I want to move on to Indonesia if I can, because what I want, what I want you to establish is this pattern that, that Kennedy mm-hmm. is undoing or trying to undo all of these uh, little operations that the Dulles brothers and the Rockefellers, we should point out, were putting in place. So that brings us to Indonesia and, and one of the, the, the world's most bloodiest coups in history that cost anywhere between a quarter million and a half million lives. So what was going on in Indonesia uh, and the Dulles brothers? Well, the Dulles brothers tried to overthrow Sukarno, who was the uh, original president of the country, and uh, it didn't work very well. Uh, So the American military aid to um, the uh, armed forces there was increased, and then... Kennedy comes in, and Kennedy looks at the reports about the attempted overthrow, and he says, no wonder Sukarno doesn't like it. We tried to overthrow his government, all right? And so he decides that he wants to get uh, one of the CIA pilots who was caught during the attempted coup, Alan Pope, back, all right? So he decides he has to meet with Sukarno one way or the other. And so he says he's, he wants to arrange a deal. Okay, we want to get Alan Pope back, and then we'll work with you to get West Erion or Papua returned to you from the Dutch, because Sukarno thought that this was really part of Indonesia. All right? And so 
JFK sets up what's called the New York Agreement. His brother and Ellsworth Bunker negotiate for Sukarno to get that island back under Indonesian rule. All right? And so things are really looking great between Sukarno and JFK. And Sukarno's really happy, and Kennedy has promised he's going to visit Indonesia in 1964. All right? And Sukarno starts building an estate for his visit, okay? And he was really relying on Kennedy's visit there to prop up his presidency, okay, against his enemies in the military and also the British, okay, who, who are trying to form uh, this Malaysian entity, okay, uh, which he sees as being against him. And so... When Kennedy's assassinated, Sukarno starts crying. He says, why did they, notice he said they, why did they kill my friend John Kennedy? Mm-hmm. All right? And believe me, that wasn't even the beginning of the dark day that it seemed to Sukarno, because, man, as fast as the policy changed in Congo, it might have been even faster in Indonesia. Okay, in, in, a, in about a space of about four months, Johnson decides he's not going to visit Indonesia. All right, he's going to cut off all economic funds to Indonesia and funnel them to the military, where he knew many of Sukarno's enemies were. In the summer of 1964, the CIA begins to plan covert propaganda and bring in people they think they can rely on to overthrow Sukarno. Okay, right. I got to jump and in here. Got to jump in, Jim. Well, we'll pick okay. this up on the other side. The uh, the Indonesian coup again, a quarter of a million to a half a million people in this uh, bloody coup, and it's all about the gold, folks. Back with more of Jim DiEugenio right here on the Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. The owners of the system are asleep. Now we can play. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. I think we're starting to see the pattern here. And it involves the Dulles Brothers, uh, for sure, and the Rockefellers, David Rockefeller, as we'll uh, discover as well. And it's not just about Kennedy's uh, foreign policy with regards to Cuba or uh, Vietnam. It's all over the place. It's the Congo. It's Indonesia, as we're now discussing. In a moment, we'll... We'll talk about Iran uh, and Egypt, uh, if, t- if time permits. But let's just finish up with Indonesia. So this this bloody coup uh, the, to overthrow Sukarno and um, the CIA, they're funneling in uh, money and, and propaganda and so forth. Uh, just continue on, Jim, right. and then we'll, we'll move on to Iran. Right. And so the guy they decide to back is this General Suharto. And Suharto is sort of like a double agent. Or he's making like he's part of the team that wants to protect Sukarno, but he's really a guy who is working on the other side. And so he pretty much takes over the night of the coup, okay? And through instructions through the army, they went ahead and decimated the PKI, which was the Indonesian Communist Party, which I'm pretty sure was the largest communist party in any country outside of Russia and China, 
All right, and nobody really knows. Like you said, quarter of a million, half a million. Some people put it even higher. Okay, this. Well, is, the rivers were running red. Over. The rivers were running red. Yes, yes, and so when it's all over, the same thing happened in Indonesia that happened in Congo. Suharto becomes more or less a military dictator like Joseph Mobutu, and he sacks the country, except one big difference. Indonesia was even richer than Congo mm -hmm. because of, like you talked about, the these two uh, gold strikes called the Erzberg and the Grossberg in these mountains on West Erion, which very few people knew about, but Alan Dulles did, that they were the most phenomenal sources of gold in the entire world at that time. And so what happens, of course, is that a Rockefeller company called Freeport Sulphur comes in, buys the uh, claim from Suharto, and to, to say they took out hundreds of millions actually is a low ball. It's probably in the tens of billions, okay, right. from both places. Later became Freeport Mac Moran, all right? And the wealth was just mind-boggling. Gold, silver, copper. There was even oil in West Iran, all right? There's a good book coming out in the fall about this called Alan Dulles versus John F. Kennedy, Target Indonesia, all right? Well, I know because I wrote the afterword for it. All right, now, uh, I think the place... Um, we should I want to mention Iran to next. Yes. Can we talk about okay. Iran? Because uh, we know that in the 1950s, Nobody the CIA... Talks Nobody talks about the Middle East. Oh, okay. do you want to, well, do you want to go there? Policy. Yeah, well, why don't we go to his Middle East policy? See, okay, Kennedy, Na Nasser. JFK was a, was a big supporter of Abdul Nasser. Right, just what I was going to say. Kennedy looked at Nasser of Egypt as a way of neutralizing the radical Islamist in that area. He didn't like people like the Shah in Iran or King Saud in Saudi Arabia. He thought they were backward. He thought they were dictatorial. He thought they lacked in human rights. And so he put a lot of pressure on the Shah to begin to at least democratizing his state and granting uh, serfs property and human rights, etc. And so what happens is that he begins to back Nasser because Nasser, number one, is a progressive, Egypt is a democracy, and he's secular. Okay? Nasser opposed the Muslim Brotherhood. He declared war on the Muslim Brotherhood in, inside of Egypt. Okay? And so Kennedy looked at him to moderate okay, the Arabs. And there's two other things that are very important. Number one, Kennedy was trying to press Golda Meir and David Ben-Gurion in Israel as a right to return for Palestinians. What that meant was that he thought the Palestinians who were thrown out during the... Uh, during the war of 47 and 48, and I think what they call it the Nabaka, is it called the Nabaka? 
N-B-A-K-A. That's I'm not sure of the pronunciation. Yeah. Yeah, okay. And so he said, look, we should give these people three options. They can stay where they are. They can return to their homes in Israel. Or they can be resettled somewhere else. The U.N. will pay for it, which really meant the United States would pay for it. And he was pushing this all the way into 1963, after the U.N. had given up on it. Okay? Try and find an American politician who's for that today. All right? But, and then the second thing he was demanding of Israel was Demona inspections. Right. right. He their nuclear missiles. The atomic reactor at Demona was for a nuclear weapon. I'm sure you know all about that, right? Oh, yes, yes, yes. Yes. Yeah. But, but the other thing, though, was he, Kennedy was – here's just, just a, qu- a quick point on, on U.S.-Israel relations. Kennedy was really the first president that said to Israel, we have your back, because he sold them uh, anti-aircraft guns, and, and uh, he was – in many regards, you know, they, they planted that the JFK Memorial Forest in Israel. He was Israel's best friend. Um, so anyway, I, I just wanted to, 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 to throw that in there. No, he, he sold them jets, but he, yeah. he checked this out with Nasser to begin with. He let Nasser know what he was doing and why he was doing it, okay? Because he was trying to find a middle, okay, that he could negotiate, bring some people to the negotiating table, you know, by not alien, completely alienating Israel. But I will say this. Kennedy wrote two threatening letters to David Ben-Gurion in which he literally said, either you're going to let us into Demona or you're going to have trouble getting money out of us. All right? And this first letter, Ben-Gurion went nuts, started accusing uh, you know, Nasser of being a new Hitler. Okay, Kennedy just ignored it, wrote him another letter. The second one, he was a little bit more moderate in his reply, but he was still did not give them a timetable. The next day, and I'm telling you, this is absolutely the truth, David Ben-Gurion stepped down as Prime Minister of Israel. Okay? And I wrote a long article in this magazine called Garrison, about this, because I thought I don't think that many people knew about it. All right, but I think it's extraordinarily interesting because our Middle East policy after Kennedy's assassination, just like everything else, it went completely bonkers. It went completely downhill. We're just about Way out of time here, Jim. But but the the important thing here for me is sixty years ago, almost he Kennedy saw the danger of radical islam and was trying to prevent right. that from happening but and now all his you know his his worst nightmare came true didn't it right exactly correct all right jim we are out of time but very quickly when can we hope to see this new exciting documentary project you're working alongside with oliver stone well i suspect it'll be done in march go on the market next summer so you'll probably see it next fall Fantastic. And uh, we can follow uh, all the latest updates at the website kennedysandking.com. And I've linked up to that site on uh, strangeplanet.ca. Just click on Jim's name. It'll take you right there, kennedysandking.com. Jim, always a pleasure. Thank you so much, my friend. Thanks, Reg. Jim D. Eugenio, what a busy guy.
All right, when we come back, the miracle molecule, carbon-60. Stay with us.